Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. Today we are joined by Nigel Topping, the UK government's high-level champion for climate action for COP26. His role is to help drive action from businesses, investors, organisations, cities and regions on climate change and coordinate this work with governments and parties to the UNFCC. His previous roles include the CEO of We Mean Business and Executive Director of the Carbon Disclosure Project. Nigel talks to us about what it means to be a green leader the skills and competencies required to be effective as a leader, his driving forces, and those required by the next generation of leaders. So welcome, Nigel Topping, to the Sustainability and You podcast. Tilly and I are thrilled to have you with us here today, particularly um, given your very busy schedule in the run-up to COP26. Um, we're going to jump straight in, if we may. Um, yes, please, please do. It's great to be with you. Yeah, thank you, Nigel. Thank you. Um, so the theme for today's um, podcast is, is green leadership in particular. And we want to focus on what effective leadership looks like in these sort of challenging times if we, as we face the realities of climate change on business, the environment, and, and on us as individuals. It strikes me that if we want to dial down temperature rises, we need to dial up our expectations of government and business in particular. But before we look at that more closely, can we start with you and your hugely positive and impactful leadership in the run-up to COP26? We're very interested in understanding from you what has influenced and shaped your leadership. I mean, as always, a mixture of some individuals, particularly, I would say, in terms of my in terms of my leadership, my father and grandfather, and then and then experiences, particularly on the sports field, in in the mountains and in the industry. So, uh, where, where do we start? <laughs> I think that's a menu. I mean, maybe you know, are there some pearls of wisdom or some particular things that stick out for you that that were pivotal in your leadership style? Well. Two things. I want to say one thing for my father, my grandfather. So, my father was a. Well, my grandfather was very influential. He was for me. He's a son of a coal miner who became a professor. So, made an amazing, amazing life. And he also became a Quaker, and he was a vice chancellor of Brunel University. But he turned into university. But he, his Quakerism was very. So he was weird. He was like a member of the establishment, but he was kind of anti-establishment in a way that. Quakers are um, don't really believe in hierarchy and had a very strong value which sort of seeped into mm-hmm. me about you know valuing everybody and so you know I, that that was just kind of important to me in my career in manufacturing about you know really working with 
with the shop floor rather than on or to the shop floor, might even a consultant. So that's one of the things I love about my role now is it's about trying to mobilise and work with the whole of society. And I think that, um, you know, there's a place for elites. Like if you want to know, if you want to get the best place for heart surgery, you kind of want an elite. But I think in dealing with a systemic problem like climate change, then we can't just, we can't leave it to elite. We need to listen to experts, but we can't leave it to elites. So um, I think that, that was a big influence on me. And so for me, it's fun recognising that there is leadership everywhere. And then, actually, my father, I remember, he was a quiet man. My father, he passed away a long time ago. But he, was a, he was a civil engineer. I remember going to the company. It was Taylor Woodrow. It was one of those sort of family company mm. things. They might have had a sports day or something. And it just been promoted. And I remember somebody coming up to me and said, he should have been promoted years ago, but he never played the, but he never played the game. Mm. And I think that's something that's also mm. stuck with me about being true to, and it's difficult sometimes when people are playing games, but I think really, really being true to what matters to you and I've been very lucky in my career that I've ended up doing something that I'm really really passionate about so in a way it's quite easy but I think um, not playing the game and being clear what your own moral compass is rather than what other people expect you to do. Yeah that's quite a lovely story isn't there there's something very powerful about sort of quiet leadership there and being a disruptive. I don't think anyone would call me a quiet leader. (laughs) (laughs) Well it's observational that's for sure isn't it? But, but there's, yeah, maybe not quiet, uh, deliberately disruptive. Um, yes. But you're engaging with a, a variety of leaders in the run-up to COP26, from ministers through to CEOs from all around the world. What are you looking for in leaders to do right now to contribute to the race to zero? I mean, I'd say there's, there's, the, there's the kind of basic leadership, which is don't fall behind, right? Be in the race. I mean, literally, we've created this thing called the race to zero, which is robust way of companies and investors and other you know in universities cities schools committing to get to net zero in the 2040s and, and have a robust plan in the short term so that's becoming a sort of minimum standard of leadership right so so there's the kind of don't miss the boat sort of leadership which which, which is a real thing right when you're seeing a, a paradigm shift it's very difficult for people to believe that something's going to change as fast as does. But the real leadership means going beyond that. I mean, it means it means being leadership for systems change, so taking responsibility for you know your supply chain, for the advocacy for policy, for um, the trade bodies that you're in. I was like, I always think of it as finding the about finding the edge of what you're comfortable with, and then taking a couple more steps. So I think that's the kind of leadership that we really need now because the problem's so big that if people are just following, then there are no leaders. So I think it's what I call systems change leadership, by people trying to transform the whole system. That, that they're a part of. Yeah, and systemic thinking like that is hugely complex, isn't it? And the skills required to navigate through that are really quite complex. You need to think about the interconnectedness of things and your ability to join the dots across you know, a whole range of different um, operational and business sort of issues. Are, are there any shining examples that you can draw on that you're seeing today that, that are role models for us? Well, I mean, I really agree with you that, that being able to see interconnection is a is a key quality of systems leaders, and of course, that actually starts with it starts with diversity, right? It goes back to not surrounding yourself with people who have exactly the same life experience and sort of cognitive patterns as as you do. You know, I mean, and diversity in all its forms. It means it means that this that is a space for quiet leadership, right? Because of listening to. Listening to people who don't agree with you or have very different experiences, and then I, th- I think what we're starting to see is a much more sort of pluralistic view of leadership, which is not. I think we're you now we still have a bit of this sort of 
view of the heroic leader, you know, comes in, diagnoses everything that's wrong, and single-handedly slays all the dragons and solves things. And I think we're, I think we're seeing a leader, an era come in much more of. I was just listening to the radio this morning of anthropological intelligence, so the ability to see the world from lots of. So I think we see. I mean, you know, that obviously has become a close friend, Paul Polman, who's stepped yeah. down as CEO of Unilever. But unbelievable how somebody can run such a big international enterprise and care about and listen to the, the, the voice of women in the supply chain, the voice of a, I remember mm. him introducing me to a mm. blind ice cream seller from Mexico City who'd become a kind of star Unilever ice cream salesman. It's just like, uh, you know, just, 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 to, just to be involved in and listening to and promoting so many, so many different. But then I think now we're also starting to see much more collaborative leadership where it's not so much an individual that you point mm. to as an initiative. So one of my favourites at the moment is a big collaboration to drive down emissions in the shipping industry. It's called Getting to Zero. So mm. I think we're moving from the hero being an individual to the hero being mm. some form of collaborative. And um, I think that's I think that's a healthy thing. Although the media always wants to know who the star of the show is. I think the stars are becoming these clusters of collaborators. I think there's an increasing desire for that, and particularly among the younger generation. I think that's why that uh, kind of more collaborative approach to leadership is on the rise. I'm interested on how that approach is easily, or how easily that approach is adopted in such an urgent matter, because generally when something is so urgent, it kind of takes this sort of, or maybe it's just what we're used to, but generally you need someone to stand up and, and take the lead, as it were. And I'm just interested as to how that fits together. Yeah, I, th- I think um, I think it's a mix of something. I think you, I mean, I think actually, as you were speaking, I was just thinking of, of, of Greta Thunberg, right? Because she took a stance. That's leadership, right? Doing something when no one expects you to do it because you decide it's the right thing to do. And then was surprised that it resonated with millions of young people. And if you listen to her, she's always been very humble about not, not seeing herself as the leader. Yeah. So I think, but but if no one took the stance in the first place, there's nothing to follow, right? So you, you both need a, something disruptive. Yeah. That, that if it resonates, then many people will follow. But I think there is a danger, you know, when you have the cult of the leader, it actually it makes it harder for others to follow because you get other people who are like, oh, I don't want to follow. I don't want to be in someone else's club. You know, so I think, I think finding the balance of like disrupting, but not then pretending that you're in charge because no one's really, in, no one's in charge of these kind of movements. Right. So that's, that's the real fallacy is that one individual sees the problem and then is in charge of changing everything. There's room for vision within that though, isn't there? And then bringing people along as you paint a picture of the future and how you want to maybe lead your organization to that that future there's obviously in, individual choice about how you engage with that when you look at businesses like Orsted you know as it was in in Dong days and uh, Anders Elthrup's um, leadership and vision and they were very clear that they had painted a picture of the future and then worked out how they were going to get there I think that's really really powerful the the, the art of storytelling yeah and of course um Victors tell the stories, right? So if you actually listen to people who work through that, also they were they were they were visionary, but also lucky, right? Because yeah. t- you know you can't t- timing is timing is everything in this kind of disruption. So they're now they're now they're now are a genius visionary company. But you know we've also seen people like Emmanuel Farber, who I think you would describe as a visionary at Danon, you know can't fall out of favour with with the board. So vision, visionaries sometimes succeed, sometimes they get their heads chopped off. So yeah. that, 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 that's, why, that's why it requires leadership, right? Because I say you get to the edge yeah. of what's comfortable 
And then you have to, it's basically an existential risk to take real leadership because you're doing something that everyone else, you know, that a lot of people think is crazy. But there's a lot of personal qualities that inform that, isn't it? Is it something that you think that you can learn? Because that braveness, that boldness, that ability or, or desire, willingness to put the head above the parapet? I think it tends to happen when you're either quite young or at the end of your career, generally speaking. Because when you think about someone like Jeremy Grantham, who's in his 80s, who's like one of the most visionary investors, he will stand up on stage and say, zero career risk. Right. So he does not, you know, he doesn't. And if you're and if you're a teenager, you have zero career risk. Right? By the time you're 30, so you see much it's it becomes harder and harder to be. Now, of course, it, it, but if you're at the if you're at the head of a big organization, you actually need people who've got they're normally people with like 20 years' experience. So I think those are the in a way there, those are the most visionaries we need the most, right? Are the ones yeah. who are in the prime of their institutional power. Absolutely. Um, they're not, you know, not they're not retired and able to say mm-hmm. what they like. They're not pre-career and able to say what they like they're actually having to navigate the you know i i always think of it as you know you have all sorts of pieces of elastic mm-hmm. which if you snap then you lose your power you know you can't just transform the world if you're a prime minister or a ceo or a mayor you know you've got all sorts of conflicting demands on you that you have to you have to manage skillfully so i think it's people with those we need visionaries you know the wise visionaries at the end of their career and the bolshie visionaries at the beginning of their career but it's those visionaries in the middle who are having to navigate all those bits of elastic that i think uh, we really we really need to find and, and support yes and they're trying to you know walk the tightrope of balancing profit with with impact how, how do you encourage strategic decision makers to get that sort of balance right i mean we, we've got increasingly valuable data that's informing uh, the economic uh, rationale for for moving in that direction but the first movers the brave first movers still need to take risk on that well you can go too soon in any transformation mm-hmm. right and if you if you if you you know i mean it's like the only two things you've got to get right with investing in the transformation are not going too soon and not going too late right i think you also have to be careful with the framing because i, I mean i just challenge the framing of balance you know, I know, I know most about the automotive industry because it's the one I worked. In. It's not a green issue or a balance issue to get the right product strategy, so you're not end up with a load of stranded assets and lost market share. This this change is happening, so I think we have to be careful. But quite often, the framing is this is a green issue, an ethical issue, an ESG issue, a CSR issue. It's balancing profit with purpose. I think that because society has decided and realised we have to make this transition, it's not a question of balance. It's absolutely not a question of balance. It's, a, it's like if you if you want to if you think it's a question of balance, you're probably going to screw up because you're going to be cautious. And these changes are all happening exponentially. And if you mm-hmm. if you tiptoe around the beginning of an exponential change, you ne- you, you can never catch up. So I, I'm wary of the idea that there's a balance question here. Yeah, but there's a bit of push and pull with that, isn't there? Because you've got the sort of regulatory drivers for change, and then you've got the personal choice to change. Do you think the the role of regulation is is where it should be? I mean, at a most straightforward level, no, right? Because we mm-hmm. don't have mandated pathways to net zero as fast as possible in every country in the world, in every sector in the world. But I, I, this goes back to our point about interconnectedness. I think, mm-hmm. you know, look, in the last nine months, we've had an unbelievable surge of major economies committing to net zero, right? So, and then they commit to net zero, and then they have their 2030 plan, and then they've got to put the policies in place to deliver it. So I think, no, 
but I think all the levers that are in, I mean, even policy, you know, policy doesn't just exist in a vacuum and decide what to do. It also it can't go too fast because it can't get too far ahead of citizens. It can't get too far ahead of business. Can't get too far ahead of technology. Mm-hmm. So I think, for example, you know, the growing number of countries com- committing to phasing out combustion engine sales in 2030—that's pretty. That, that, that's that's pretty good policy, right? That's very mm-hmm. very clear. Mm-hmm. Um, it drives innovation and it gets us to, to zero sort of within 10 years after that. Another area of policy around the world is not converging as quickly as we'd like to see in some of the other some of the sectors where the technology is not as far along. But I think, but I think even that policy curve is going exponential. Right. And mm-hmm. I'd be very surprised by COP if we don't have another 10 countries committed mm-hmm. to phasing out combustion engines in the 30s, and particularly looking at you know, China and, and the USA to yeah. you know, maybe get close to the UK, but if not, at least 2035. You know, I think we could have a headline in COP that the combustion engine's dead. At least you know, we have an end, end date for it, or that you know, we're, we're, on the, we're on the last mile, so to speak. And you know, we, Mark Carney talks about the alignment of value with values. You know, when you look at the global landscape for, for leadership and, and, and obviously the variety of views and ethical and sort of religious drivers in decision making, how do, how do we create a common landscape for, for, for that concept of values that will inform our valued decision making? You could argue that, we, you know, the value which we promoted was you know, selfishness, greed, atomized society, and, and, and you know we got got what we valued. Now we start to value, you know, the planet, fairness. Then we'll, we'll end up with you know those. We'll end up with a different system. There's a lot a lot of work to be done. There. I mean, Mark Mark's um, I think work and thinking have been great. And I I think that um, when you look at the finance sector, you've got people like you know Generation Investment Management and Aviva yeah. committing to net zero 2040. It's very, so it's very interesting. Like within the last six months, 2050s become like if you you know if you're not if you're not committed to net zero 2050, you're out of line with the values mm-hmm. of society, which are informed mm-hmm. by the science mm-hmm. and the and the ethics. Right, they're all, uh, you know you're certainly out of line with the values of the next generation of talent. Something I hear a lot from business leaders if they want to hire the best analysts, the best engineers, they have to they better have a. I was talking to the CEO of Deloitte the other day. Three hundred thousand staff around the world. They they hire thirty thousand people a year. Those young graduates are demanding that the companies they work for have a really good story about what they're doing about sustainability about um, equality about climate change about biodiversity and if, if they don't hear a good story then they vote with their feet so so it's like if the value always gets translated somehow right so it becomes you know the value of sustainability gets translated in we want clean cars or we want to work for a company that's got purpose it doesn't it, there's, there's, i think it's always a sort of translation job and that, that i think is another big role for leaders right is to translate values into practical steps and into stories which resonate yeah and there's more sort of emotive language in the articulation of that isn't there when you look at say the disruptor review and the concept of inclusive gdp or or or, or capitalism it's quite powerful and it's encouraging that more holistic view isn't it of profit if you like but we still have those sort of economic drivers and we need to meet the demands of shareholders and delivering sort of return. Do you have many conversations with CEOs around how they view value creation? We talk about long-term value creation, but we still need to deliver the economic return. I mean, obviously, we, we know we have, uh, have, have lots of drivers for short-termism, but I mean, contrary to what you often read, I mean, CEOs are not only thinking about the next quarter. I mean, you know, they're not making investment decisions based on the next quarter. They're not, they're not hiring staff based on the, on the next quarter. I, I, I do think that... Um, 
you know, quarterly reporting and the media do sort of shrink, shrink time horizons. I mean, that, that's the sort of broader tragedy of the rises that Mark mm. talked about. But um, actually, I think leaders leaders always have to balance short term. I, mean, I remember when I was a young factory manager, you know, every factory manager in the world wants to shut the factory for a year to retrain everybody to fix all the machinery, you know, to have, but you can't, right? So I think that's the same in any business or any government. You've got to both keep things going and invest in in, in the future. And so I think um, hopefully what we're seeing is a bit of a rebalancing of that of that of that tension that is always there, and making and, and investing more in kind of human and physical infrastructure for the for the future. And you've you've mentioned Greta as a great leader of our time, representing many of the voices of tomorrow, um, as is Tilly. Tilly is one of these people that um, is passionate about the environment and has a desire to be a leader of tomorrow. How do you feel that we should encourage that next generation of leaders and, and help them develop confidence in their leadership skills, challenge their leadership style, and develop all the competencies that, that we think they will need to be effective leaders? A, a, a couple of ways, I think that, um, and it goes back to the kind of interconnectedness and diversity earlier. I think, and, and, and we're seeing progress in this. I think remembering that in a in a disruption, young leaders don't just have a role of a sort of intergenerational role, but will be but will be old leaders one day, right? So your point about about development gap. I always use the moonshot example where when Kennedy announced the moonshot um, in '61, um, he was speaking to a lot of high school teenagers when the eagle landed. Two of them. Engineers who had to make life and death decisions in a split second were in their early twenties, right? So they'd been teenagers when the call to action came out. So that, that happens quite quickly, right? Between a teenager and being so being being being, being, being if you like a a leader with no institutional power to a leader in 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 the world of institutions can happen very quickly. So I think never forget that is one thing. So I think making sure that we're including young people in 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 dialogue so that that voice. So that it's not like you know the youth event and then the business event and then the cities event. So that because that dialogue is for everybody to learn, right? It's for the young leader to actually listen to the mayor explaining the complexity of how, of, of the moves they're trying to make, and it's for the mayor to listen to the thoughtful view of the world from the young leader. You know, that, so I think that's one. We've created a youth fellowship program within our organisation. We have five young professionals who are working. But, but are giving you know are spending some of their time in our team um and in that sense they're both youth voices but but professional voices you know they're not they're not just there because they're young you know they're, they're, you know, Mateusz is there because he's an expert in regenerative agriculture we've got experts in insect protein and they don't just bring their youth and I think that's an important thing to mm-hmm. not assume that young people are just young they're also yeah. people who bring yeah. you know maybe less life <laughs> less life experience but they're still but they've got they've got their dreams and they've got their mm-hmm. education they've got their pathways and so and especially something that for many people is as new as climate change that they, they in some conversations they may be as well or better informed because they may be in or more recently in full-time education and it does this whole transformation does require a lot of rewiring of brains when we've assumed the world was like this and we realize it's got to be like that so i think there's lots of ways. Um, that's that's a couple of things that we're doing. That's the great thing about the collaborative leadership style as well, is kind of bringing together all of those different perspectives and lesser or longer life experience and different stages in their lives. And also, you know, I think young people are hugely passionate, as we've seen with a lot of the Extinction Rebellion stuff and um, obviously with Greta Thunberg, who's just an iconic figure 
And I think it's great that you've got a kind of that sort of approach to the interlinking rather than the the youth for the sake of being the youth, because I do think there's a, a tendency to quota these things. Yeah, the other thing, Tilly, I think I'm interested in your views. I think I feel like I feel like sometimes the people, older leaders, are a bit f- afraid of younger leaders. And I think we should also be prepared to have, you know, frank exchanges. So, I, I, so let me let me try this out. And you, know, I think there's two things. We, I think there's two things that I would call on young leaders like you, and uh, in terms of helping this overall movement, is first of all, don't fall into the trap of making this an intergenerational battle. Actually, your generation are more wasteful than my generation were at your age. So it's the whole of society that's got less sustainable. Yeah. So let's not let's not make it, you know, one generation screwed it up, another one's going to... I think that... Um, so I see you're nodding. So it was, what, what, do, you, do, you think do you think that's a trap that some young people fall into? Like, I think what? it is. Yeah, no, I do. I really do think it's a trap. And it's very easy to have lived for a shorter period of time and assume that everything that you're doing is right. And I also think that there is a massive echo chamber within the climate agenda particularly in the younger generation and actually I've read some interesting data on particularly on recycling where you know younger people actually recycling less than sort of people in their 50s 60s and I find that really interesting and you're right in terms of when we were when 50 or 60 year olds were our age they were producing less waste than we are now just because of the acceleration of the capitalist economy and consumerist culture um, so it's very easy to fall into that complacency, I think. And I, I think that um, the, the other thing, the other thing that I is ask is is, is um, and I see I see I see this from both sides. But take you know take your voice seriously and do your homework, right? So I, I, a simple example: not much is being negotiated in Glasgow, right? At mm. one level, right? It's not a renegotiation of the global climate agreement. You know, it won't it won't implement a global price on carbon. It won't implement a a, a change in ambition, and so I think it's really it's really important that we understand what is being negotiated and what the what the levers are. And I think that um, when you find that you've got a leadership voice which others listen to, then use it really responsibly. But, but that means often getting into the detail about what you call for mm-hmm. um, and, and knowing where the levers are, because the negotiations in COP is one set of levers, and then um, you know car manufacturers and ministers of transport is a whole other set of levers. And if you if you're just calling for a blanket, do more on climate change. It's very difficult for leaders to do much with that. I think increasingly leaders, you know, I remember when in, in Paris, I got I got this on my desk because I was showing someone the other day. We um I was working with women in business and we re- we recognized that this was a very technical negotiation. So I don't know you, you won't be able to see that on the podcast, but we actually we actually <laughs> we actually identified that eight bits of text which were being negotiated. So we actually took a stance on, you know. What was the actual text which we were calling for in Article Four? Because that was the language of the negotiators. Mm-hmm. So just saying we want more ambition, or we want more funding, or we want, without actually getting into the language that was being used, wouldn't 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 have. We might have been heard, but it wouldn't have been wouldn't wouldn't have had much influence. I think doing the homework and getting specific enough is really important. Yeah, it's the discipline of execution, isn't it? Ideas are great, but <laughs> let's execute well on it. Nigel, I'm very conscious that you need to go and make COP26 happen. (laughs) (laughs) And you've been very generous with your time for us today. But can we finish by just saying a huge thank you? Thank you for your leadership and and sharing your thoughts with us today. It's been hugely interesting and uh, and, and there's lots to learn and continue to learn. So thank you for your time today. 
Well, thank you, Josephine. Thank you, Tilly. It's been fun, fun talking to you. And, and thank you for your leadership. And let's see, hopefully we see each other on the way to Glasgow from Ireland. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Thanks. Thanks a lot.